Hello everybody at futureprimitive.org. I'm, uh, you know, I'm always happy to be with the people I choose to be with and who accept the invitation. So I'm here today in northern New Mexico in a village called Chimayu with Chelis Glendinning, who is a European-American author of creative nonfiction, a licensed psychotherapist, and a political activist. She is noted as a pioneer in the field of eco-psychology and a critic of technological society, having worked with such contemporaries as Jerry Mander, Vandana Shiva, Elena Norberg-Hodge, and Kirkpatrick Sale. Chelis is a writer, and she has written five books, as well as she has written for journals and magazines and newspapers. The books she has written are, My name is Chelis, and I'm in recovery from Western civilization. Shiva, a village, takes on the global heroin trade. And she's the winner of the National Federation of Press Women, the 2006 Book Award for General Nonfiction. I could read many other awards that you have received, Chellis, but I'll jump right into saying that um, I read Shiva at some point about four years ago, and I couldn't put it down. And as I've said to you before, what absolutely fascinates me about this book is that it reached me on three levels, the local, the national, and the international. And I just love that you were able to put it that way. So let's perhaps start, if you wish, with this book and then maybe expand to what's going on now Mm. on the personal national and international level. Yes. So speak to us about Shiva. Okay. Well, I live in a county in northern New Mexico uh, that was uh, highlighted in the kind of mid-late 90s as being the county with the most drug overdose deaths per capita in the United States. And it was curious because when the study came out, we already knew this, you know. It was like I remember reading it in the newspaper and thinking, oh, well, what else is new, you know. I mean, not that I couched it in those terms, but, but just that we were living in a world of drug use and drug dealers and drug crimes and, and all of that. And um, what happened in the late 90s is that uh, the village rose up, our village, which had the most dealers at the time the most narco-traficantes. And the village rose up in indigenous ways because this is a land-based indigenous village. And so it was very curious to me to be a part of and to witness this process. Uh, How do people who are connected to their ancestry and to their land fight something so tremendous as the global heroin trade? And so the book is the story of how it was and how the village rose up. But it's couched in the story of the greater uh, heroin trade in the world and the history of that trade. And, and it's 
link up with imperialism and colonization, uh, largely of indigenous people. Uh, and then my personal story is woven through it, which is my, the story of not only living here, that's a story in itself, but of my personal relationship with a man who was in recovery from being a heroin dealer and uh, a bank robber. And so that's the story. Um, but I wanted to say something about mm-hmm. you know your interest in the different levels, mm-hmm. which is that one of my inspirations as a writer is a woman named Susan Griffin. She's a feminist poet and a philosopher. She's written quite a number of books and plays and poems and whatnot. And um, when she writes, she writes in a way that I feel is very similar to the way that I experience life and the, the way that I think. And I think that, you know, many, many stories or many essays don't exactly capture how we experience life. You know, they're too organized. It's like there's a, a story with a beginning, middle, and end, a denouement and all that. Mm-hmm. You know, or here's, the, in an essay, here's the point and here's the evidence. Mm-hmm. Or here's the evidence and here's the point. Mm-hmm. Um, but the way that we experience life is much more continuous and multi-leveled and jumping from one level to another. And I felt that Susan really had the capacity to capture that. So I was very impressed through the years, knowing her as a friend and reading her work. Right. And I thought, I'd like to be able to write in a way that expresses how I experience life. And so that was my effort with this book. And it was also the effort with the book before called Off the Map. Um, And then, so then when the book was done, and I dedicated it to Susan, um, Off the Map, my first attempt. And, um, And I said, you know, I was really inspired by your writing. And I'm kind of a you know, a knockoff of yours. And so she read uh, what I had written, and she came back to me and she said, no, this, does, this isn't like how I write at all. And then we both had a good laugh, and she said, you invented your own style. Mm. <laughs> I would love it if you would speak about Off the Map, because we have a dear friend in common who just loves that book. Uh-huh. Are you speaking of Ian Baldwin? Uh-huh. Yes. Great. So, well, that was the first time I tried it, um, this kind of writing. And this is a book about imperialism. And the subtitle is Off the Map, An Expedition Deep into Empire and the Global Economy. And so three levels. One level is my personal experience of growing up within the empire. And one level is the experience of northern New Mexico and the Indo-Hispano community here that has been colonized and had their land ripped off by the United States Mm -hmm. of America um, and various opportunists. And then the third level is going to that international level of the story and history of empire. And I have these three levels woven through the whole thing. So read it. Uh, It's called Off the Map, and you can get it at Amazon.com. Yes, or in a bookstore. Or in a bookstore. Let's go for those bookstores. Great, great. (laughs) Now, this concept of drug addiction or whatever it is to fill the terrible vacuum coming from the fact that people no longer 
have their hands in the earth. I would love you to talk about that from your heart and your relationship to the earth. Mm. Well, I, th- I think that I've always had a sense of place. I mean, I think that I was given that by my family because of the tremendous sense of place that my family had in the arrival on this continent, the Turtle Island continent of North America, and the history of, of those people who start off in the Massachusetts Bay Colony and went to Connecticut and then went west to Ohio. And so I grew up in a family that really gave me how to experience knowing a place, how to experience loving a place, as well as the history of the place. And so it wasn't odd for me coming here to northern New Mexico and being among people who everything, I mean, when you meet somebody, you don't say, what do you do? You say, who are your people and what village are you from? Uh, I want to interrupt you because you said that your parents showed you how to love the place and be of the place. Mm -hmm. Could you drop a little deeper in that and say what they gave you? What is it? What is this recognition they give you? Oh, goodness. That's a question. I'm not sure there's words for it, you know. I mean, it, it has to do with soul. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, maybe it's a bunch of words. It's kind of like this happened here, you know. Moses Cleveland arrived. Yeah. And this is the first house, and yeah. our people came X number of years later, and they were here, and then they, because these things were happening, you know, industrialism was arriving, or, you know, I mean, I'm just quickly making this up, but um, our people then were part of that process in this way, and then they moved here, and then and then Mimer and Pipper built this brick house, and they were uh, the first people up on the hill here who, you know, all right, so it's a story, but at the same time, you're in the place, and you you feel the place, and so you're receiving from the place something that is ineffable, you know, that can't be described except maybe in poetry, um, or maybe it can be painted or something. Maybe there can be a song about it, but, you know, the language doesn't quite cover it. So at the same time, my mother was hauling me around New England and showing me where the people were in Connecticut and where she went to college and, and um, you know, where these events took place in American history and, and where the Native people lived and all of this stuff. At the same time, I was getting the chance to experience it on a soul level. And so it's kind of, it's a merging of kind of mind knowledge with the feel of the place. And then on top of that, if you eat of the place, you know, if you're in Cleveland, Ohio, and you're eating the apples from the farms around there, or if you're in Chimayo, New Mexico, and you're eating of the chile that we grow here, yes, then you become part of the place. Um, and as Wendell Berry so uh, superbly puts it, uh, you take the place in, but then you give back to the place. Yes. I mean, literally, I'm oh, talking yeah. biology. Gotcha. You know, the place <laughs> becomes you, oh, and yeah. you become the place. Funny, I was thinking about this that this morning, how it goes in and it comes out, and and that's the earth. Yes. I mean, we're just a conduit, yes. and the earth is there. Um, right. Yeah, so how do you move from place to place? 
if you become rooted in the story of the place and that's what makes the place for you, mm. how does one... I mean, I've transported myself all my life from place to place. Mm-hmm. I'm a vagabond. Mm-hmm. But I came back here. I keep coming back here. To? To New Mexico. Uh-huh. I feel that... Uh, that New Mexico's grown roots into my feet. Mm. So I just wanted to ask you, how do, how does one transport oneself, mm-hmm. transplant oneself? Yes. Well, I think that um, there's a lot of emphasis on becoming part of place right now. But I think at the same time that we have to recognize that most of the people in the world today are uprooted. You know, whether they're chasing jobs or they're running away from environmental disaster, um, you know, or they're following a family member or they're traveling for pleasure or, you know, that, that most people in the world are displaced and are not of the place of their origins. Most peoples have been disrupted by the process of, of imperialism. Mm-hmm. And so there's a way in which I think that even though there's a tremendous emphasis on becoming part of place and how very important that is, uh, but at the same time that we we must have compassion for ourselves Mm. because we we have been displaced. Yes. You know, I no longer live in Northern Europe. I no longer live in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. I no longer live in Connecticut. I no longer live in Ohio or California where I spent 20 years. Now I'm 24 years into uh, being of this place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how do you become part of it? I, I think that, that you must enter with a, a sense of, of extreme wonder yes. and awe Yes. to receive the soul of the place. And, and to. it's also important to know the history. You know, when I came here, I took a lot of history classes and mm-hmm. read a lot of books and talked to a lot of historians and visited the places. And, you know, and then, of course, being in a place where history is so important, everybody would talk to me about it. Um, so y- you must know where you are. And because one of the forgotten themes, um, qualities of empire is sovereignty. And so I feel very strongly that when you enter a place, that it's very important that you understand the rules of sovereignty of that place. And it might take you years before you become accepted into the community. But the way to become accepted is not to come and lay your ideas onto the place, but rather to understand that this place has sovereignty, whether it's recognized at that moment by the overarching political entity or not. Um, that so your job is to relate to it um, in wonder and in support and with a learning process rather than come in and say well this should be over here and that should be over there and I'm going to give you my project and I'm going to lay this on you. How do you keep your or do we keep our sense of awe and wonder in what I see as a civilization that, to me, seems to be disintegrating. Mm -hmm. What is your feeling and Mm. thoughts about what's going on right now? 
Okay, so there's two questions. Yes, there's two questions. Oh dear. Yeah. So let's. How do you? Yeah, I I love the first question first. Um, well, I mean, some people just have it, you know, and I have to say that it was a, it was a quality of consciousness that I had to go get. I mean, maybe it was mine originally, um, but I think that we've all been wounded. We've all been wounded by this the kind of political systems that have dominated for several hundred years at least perhaps some people would argue 10,000 years mm-hmm. um in the ways that that these political forces and institutions come down on people but also the more insidious ways in which the same kind of abuses and and neglects and and problems are manifested through personal relationships and through the family So we've all been wounded and so our charge is to heal. I found that by doing backing up and doing my healing work um that it wasn't it wasn't like you needed to do a an exercise. You know, like oh well now it's bring on the awe. You know, it it it's natural. Yeah. Awe is natural to human beings. And so it was more about allowing it to reblossom by removing um the layers and layers of uh suffering and and patterning that has to do with suffering and in this particular political moment what do you see for this country and for the world because mm-hmm. we're mm-hmm. one world yes Yes, well, here we are. Um the kind of uh disintegration that uh many people have been talking about and describing and predicting uh is very much upon us in in the industrialized world. Of course, there are many places in the world that already knew that. So I don't I don't want to be uh, speaking from you know the privilege of a place that still has a police force or still has food in the in the markets mm-hmm. many places in the world have long since disintegrated so here we are this this collapse is actually taking place and some of my friends say oh well you know when the economy gets better and I always like to say, well, how could it get better? You know, the whole plan is for it to be how it was before. You know, which is uh uh an economy that's based on growth that therefore it has to be based on gobbling up resources. And there isn't that much of the planet left, you know. So it 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 can't recover. And so this is where literally uh you know, witnesses to this thing taking place. I mean, I I'm I'm no seer. You know, I I've never been engaged in much prediction. Um but we don't know how it's going to play out. Uh-huh. You know, we didn't know how this was going to play out. Yeah, yeah. So we 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 can't know. But anyway, so here's the subject of the new president of the United States. Um who is clearly 
a sincere person. And clearly an outspoken person. And clearly has ideas about how to um, turn things around. And is, whoa, started on day one, you know, quite radically. And here we are, the United States just kind of clawing our way out of the last eight years of just complete shock of what the United States has been about manifesting with no lies to it, absolutely manifesting with complete clarity mm-hmm. of what it really is about without any kind of you know, sugar coating of liberalism or anything, just this is what it's all about. And I remember when when Reagan was elected, and I I, w- I was so incredulous back in the 80s, and and, and then I I suddenly realized, well, yeah, okay, then he he must be the president that is reflecting mm-hmm. what the system is all about and what people must be thinking, unless they were engaged in some pretty amazing uh, voter fraud back then. So here we are, we're clawing our way out, and um, what a relief to have a sincere person as our president. And for me personally, I didn't become engaged in the, um, in the campaign. I mean, I went to see Obama several times when he came through here, and I was certainly surrounded by people who worked on the Obama campaign. I wasn't, I wasn't a complete cynic, but I, I just couldn't muster. I'm more of a social movement person than an electoral politics person. And, and yet, on the day of the voting, I went into the, the voting booth and I wept. I wept that I was going to be voting for Obama. Mm. And particularly because my mother mm. had become involved in the civil rights movement mm. in the 1950s. Mm. In 1955, mm. she became involved. And she worked her whole adult life on issues of racism mm. and was on the campaign committee in Cleveland for the man who was the first black mayor of a major American city. And, um, and, and I just wept that she wasn't here to, to see this, you know, that we got to do this vote. Okay, so then the um, election day happens, and I'm watching TV by myself, and um, I was flying out the next morning, so I was staying over at someone's house, and I had to get up very early. They all went off to some electoral party, and, and I was left in the house by myself, and I'm watching TV, and they announced that he won. And, I mean, I sobbed. I, I sobbed until... The only way to stop the sobbing was to turn off the TV and go to bed. I'm sobbing from my gut. What was it about? It was about all the effort that had gone in. All the people, the people who rose up in the 50s, mm-hmm. who risked their lives who were bludgeoned to death, the people who were mowed over by bulldozers. And it was about my mother not getting to see this moment, and it was about seeing Jesse Jackson weeping. You know, I mean, he was there on the balcony when Mm -hmm. Martin Luther King was killed. Mm -hmm. You know, it was about Malcolm X. It was about 
it was about the whole history. Mm-hmm. And it was just it was just unbelievable to me. And it's also been quite amazing to see him kind of like take the bull by the horns, you know, to do these quite radical actions. Um, but, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I don't think that electoral politics has a grip on the march of capitalism or the march of technological mass civilization. It doesn't even have mechanisms for, for addressing uh, what's really going on. And so I, I do remember a friend of mine who was more cynical than I was during the campaign, who was saying, oh, well, who cares about this? You know, I mean, how could you fall for that? That's just mm-hmm. getting in our way. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I said, yeah, well, you know, what if this whole baby's coming down and somebody was able to get in there and at least set up some structures for survival? Mm, that's lovely. And it's not like it's the panacea. It's not like the Messiah has arrived, but it's like if something was put in place. Some rough boots. Some, yes, some here, and here and there. Here and there. Now, one of the really big problems that I personally have with Obama is that he has this plan to do universal um, broadband. That's the oh, language. Right, That's the language. Right, it's right. Very, sounds pretty nice, doesn't mm-hmm, it? Mm-hmm. What it is, is to have every inch of the United States be blasted with microwave radio frequency electromagnetic radiation. And nobody gets out. Nobody has sovereignty. Nobody mm-hmm. has a choice about it. Mm-hmm. And already, because of the more decentralized way that capitalism has spread these things, Many people are many times over being exposed. And since the um, 1996 Telecommunications Act was passed, um, we have seen illnesses, which threw the the industry open and and started all of this. Um, We have seen illness become a normal part of everyone's life. Whereas when I grew up, you know, it was like, well, every now and then someone got cancer. Every now and then, some, it was rare, someone got a heart attack. Oh, leukemia? Hardly ever happened. Right. Allergies? Very unusual. Yeah. You know, and now every single person has a major health thing that they're dealing with. And I do attribute this. I mean, I know that the use of pesticides and the use of plastics and everything has catapulted with the, with the global economy. We're talking about the electromagnetic yes. fields. Yes, and one of the great scientists, many studies have proven this. Mm-hmm. You know, it's already proven. I mean, the, the industry likes to say it hasn't been proven yet. Yeah. And meanwhile, where they're, they're squelching the careers of the scientists who would do the proving, but it has been. There's thousands of studies that show this. There, there are medical studies, there are biological studies, there are epidemiological studies, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And... Um, and many people are already going down. But very few people have the ability to connect that the day they got the Wi-Fi in the house was the day they, their insomnia began or the day that the kids started to you know, have their nervous system crawl all over the place and, and go crazy and get ADD. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there's no place here where we can be away from that. Well, actually, you're sitting in a home 
that has no electromagnetics. Except when I turn the, my dial-up computer on. It, right. The computer, it, you know, has it for about a foot. But this house, being burbed into the earth the way it is, and being without many neighbors, you can't get cell recover, you know, coverage here. There's, there's no Wi-Fi. There's, there's nothing in this house. So I, I just wanted to dispute that, that there are places yes. um, where, but the plan is, and Obama is behind this notion of making every single place on the planet eventually, but he's starting, of course, with his sovereignty, which is the United States of America, um, to make it WiMAX, which is more powerful than Wi-Fi, which is more powerful and more spectrums than digital cellular, which is more powerful than analog cellular. But why? Why does he want to do that? So that everyone can have access this to, you know, that everyone can study anything. Education. Sitting in a, you know, on the top of Yellowstone. So here's rationalization. Or, 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 or you know, also like um, medical connections or, you know, emergency or police or, you know, I mean, there's a lot of rationales for it. But I personally think that the major rationale for it is it's the only thing that could jumpstart the economy. I see. You know, because it would just be this whole new thing. And, and just think about how, how they, I mean, this is all so carefully planned out, you know, that, okay, here's the new cell phone, and it can do this. And everybody, oh, wow, we've got to get that. So then everybody runs out and gets that. Oh, guess what? Here's the new cell phone, and it does this, but it also does that. You know, and so it, it's, it's a consumer machine. And now everyone is supposed to get Wi-Fi in their house. And, and then you can do things like turn the TV on from the other room. You know, everything, every product yeah, in yeah. the house that has a wire is going to not have a wire. Mm -hmm. And so then that will also jumpstart the economy. And then, of course, that's the growth economy. We're going to need more coal train from Africa to feed the, these products. We're going to need um, more lithium from Bolivia to make these products, et cetera, et cetera. My dear friend, uh, Francis Harwood, Uh, who was an anthropologist mm -hmm. and died a number of years ago. But she had a dream in which all the native people were rushing toward progress and all the people who'd grown up in progress were rushing back, <laughs> you know, away from progress and back to the earth. And she said, you know, she, this was actually a real dream that she had, but, but she told it with such a sense of irony and, you know, kind of wonder at the human condition. But, but it brings up an, a, an interesting issue about how particularly technologies get perpetrated upon us. You know, it's not just that they're great items that we would like to have or that it's natural that something called progress exists. Um, and so, of course, this is the next thing. It's that, that the, the people who produce these technologies and disseminate them, put them out in a way where they end up replacing what was before. And so, for instance, in, in the town of Santa Fe, at a certain point, it became 
um, not only not kosher, but illegal to ride your horse into the plaza. You know, because wow. make way for the cars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so there was this one woman who every year she'd ride her horse into the plaza and she'd get arrested um, to protest that. Absolutely. But it's an example, you know, or, or, or like American cities had public uh, transportation systems. And then when the automobile came, the, the automobile industry got made sure, you know, they bought off the city officials so that they literally dismantled those systems, those buses and trolleys and whatnot, so that, and made and made freeways and, and made way for the cars. So even if you wanted to take the trolley, you couldn't anymore. And so it's the same thing with this, you know. I mean, I can just see them doing it, you know, that that they're pretty soon you're not going to be able to get a landline, you know, pretty soon. And, and they always say, oh well, the populace wants to be able to send movies from their BlackBerry. You know, the populace demands this. Well, the populace wasn't thinking about that they wanted this thing. It, it was chucked down their throat. And, you know, either by uh, seduction or literally by making other systems impossible. You know, just a few years ago, I was advertising something um, on the Internet, on Craigslist. And just two years ago, two, three years ago, it was fine that I could, if somebody was interested, I could send a photograph to them in the mail. And then they looked at it and then they mailed the photograph back. And now, you ha you know, like no one has the patience because everything else is moving that fast. No one has the patience to receive something in the mail that's really only going to take three days to get there, you know. So it's, it's you know, this is what's happening. And it's all being propelled by this process of kind of techno-capitalism. Should you long to be in a place that's uh, much slower? Yes. Yes. I think all humans do. Yes. You know, I, th I think that everyone's having trouble today. So, uh, Chalice, what are you thinking about lately? What is your... Where do your passions go? I think I just expressed one of my big passions, you know, <laughs> which is this whole issue of electromagnetics. This is a, a very big passion for me and a very big frustration because um, so many people are bought into this. Uh, you know, I, I used to be part of a, a group uh, of technology critics. Um, and we were kind of this generation's rendition of the Luddites of the early Industrial Revolution. And then in the early 1900s, um, there was another generation. And that mm -hmm. generation was made out of people like Jacques Ellul from France and Louis Mumford from the United States and people who wrote about the mega machine and, and, and society as a machine. And, and then we, we were the next generation. And um, it's so sad to me that that way of thinking um, has been supplanted, you know. I mean, it, 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 it hard, you can't even find very much of it on the Internet, you know. And, of course, that's where all the young people are going to get their information. Yeah. And so... Um, the Internet you know, doesn't tell you the Internet is not the place to be. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. So, anyway, 
um, what are my passions? So that's clearly a passion of mine, you know, to 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 keep up with trying to put out. I mean, we were much more successful at it in back in the seventies and eighties. Mm-hmm. But I, I won't let that go. You know, I won't let a systemic analysis of technological society go because it's more important now than ever. My passions. Yeah. <laughs> I think it would be a beautiful way to bring this conversation around. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm always fascinating about what's going on in the mind and heart of Chellis Glendinning now. Uh, oh, no. Yes, I am. Oh, God. Well, I'm really fascinated with Latin America. You know, I'm fascinated with, you know, I mean, I grew up in a time and came of age in a time when you know, the great revolutionaries were active, and, you know, Che Guevara is uh, somebody that I... Oh, there, there's not enough movies or books on Che Guevara, you know, I, and I know the story backward and forward, and I, if you give me another one, I'll, I'll take the next one. Um, uh, because I'm interested in courage. Mm. You know... And and, you know, and I have a friend who was, uh, he was in the weather underground in the United States and SDS and all that back in the 60s. And then he was on the run for a long time. And he came out of that feeling that, you know, someone like Che Guevara was, was um, uh, you know, it was all wrong. It was wrong to have some, you know, an individual be the recipient of so much accolades and, and so much passion and and maybe his approach was wrong and and you know he just was criticizing him up down and the other way around curiously because he had been like that and um uh but he was engaging in self-criticism i guess um criticism self-criticism yeah old yeah. technique from yeah. the 60s yeah. from china um but anyway um I said, no, no, it's not every facet. You know, I mean, you can only judge a person in their historical time. You can't judge them by now. And there were reasons for all of that. But, you know, maybe mistakes were made or whatever. But I'm interested in him as a psychologist. Uh You know, I'm interested in the quality of courage. And I'd have to say that that's what's happening in Latin America today. You know, there was a long fallow period where it didn't look like Latin America was, uh, you know, gonna, you know, c- coming out of the, the disappearances and the, and the dictatorships. And I mean, who could blossom after that? Um, but I, I'm really interested in the courage that's being manifested. And I was fortunate to be at the inauguration of Evo Morales in Bolivia. And to stand there and, well, the first inauguration was the spiritual, the pre-Incan, you know, temple inauguration. And the second one was the state inauguration. And then he and his um, vice president, who had been uh, a leader in a guerrilla movement, and his um, first lady, who was a vegetable vendor, and he, a former coke, a farmer and union organizer, yeah. marched through the streets to the plaza where we're all waiting. And he gets up and he says, our job now is to finish the work of Che Guevara. 
and I'm like going, where am I? What's happening? And then Eduardo Galeano from Uruguay gets up and he says, this is the end of fear. And so I'm really passionate at this really late stage at a time when the earth is just being voraciously eaten up and even our best hope of a leader in this country is relying on the old paradigm of eating up further, I'm really interested in courage. Excellent. I think it's the most interesting thing there is. (laughs) Love and courage.